So, our scripture reading this morning is from Numbers 21, 4 through 9. From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many of the people of Israel died. (laughs) And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take the serpents away from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. The word of the Lord. It's a real dream come true for me to have Nanette read a scripture reading that involves snakes. That's a fun one. And anytime you get a chance to have a scripture reading from the book of Numbers, you don't pass that up. Pete Scazzaro, in his book, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship, says a core mark of emotionally healthy discipleship is a deep theological and practical understanding of limits. Without that, we severely compromise our ability to love God, ourselves, and others over the long haul. An understanding of our own limits, limitations. I'm going to, this morning, um, be looking at the scripture reading, the gospel text for this morning and for next week in Lent. This is the second Sunday in Lent. The scripture, the gospel text for this morning is from John 3. The gospel text for next week is John 4. Uh, I'm going to try and kind of hit on both of those and we'll come back to this text in numbers along the way. So let's kind of set the stage here with a reading of uh, the text from John 3, familiar to probably all of us in the room, whether we know it or not, by its reference. Now, there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with that person. Jesus answered him, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? And as Jesus rounds toward the close of this nighttime encounter with Nicodemus, He refers to this odd story from the history of God's people that we read a moment ago. He says, Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. 
Jesus' words here in this exchange are perhaps difficult to understand. In this allusion to this story of the serpent being lifted up, we might hear Jesus' words as a reference to his crucifixion being lifted up on the cross. His death will become the means by which all of humanity can experience newness of life and restoration and, and healing. St. Augustine offers a similar commentary on Jesus' words, likening the serpent to Jesus' crucifixion. He says, What is the serpent lifted up? The Lord's death on the cross. For as death came by the serpent, it was figured by the image of a serpent. The serpent's bite was deadly. The Lord's death is life-giving. Theologian Chris Green reflects on St. Augustine's interpretation and offers an alternative. He says, Jesus is not only like the brazen serpent lifted up in death so that death might be brought low. He is also like the biting serpents, striking us so that we come alive, wounding us for our healing. Not, of course, that he does evil. Jesus never harms us in any way. But like a good physician, parent, or friend, he does trouble us toward the change we need to make. Everything Nicodemus already knows as a Pharisee becomes here an impediment to his being born again insofar as he insists on clinging to those things. Jesus, however, is inviting him and each of us into a, a new way of life, a full, abundant life. But in order to enter into this life, Jesus says, Nicodemus, you'll have to reconsider everything. You're going to have to loosen your grip on what you insist upon clutching. And pastor and author Debbie Thomas reads the encounter this way. She says, if Jesus intended to save Nicodemus quickly and easily that night, he failed. What the seeker experienced was not salvation, it was bewilderment. And this is a bewildering exchange in many ways. Because Nicodemus was a respected teacher, there may not have been much that bewildered him. Think about the life of Nicodemus for a moment. He's a respected religious leader. Perhaps he even derived his sense of self-worth from his intellectual capacity. It would be hard not to, especially if everyone in your life viewed you as an authority on weighty matters of the law. If you were Nicodemus, you might even be tempted to equate your sense of self-worth with the value that others place on your intellect or on your insight. You might be tempted to mistake your understanding of others' perception of you for what's most important about you. But Jesus troubles Nicodemus in this encounter, inviting him to consider the utter inadequacy of the very thing he has to offer the world. And that's really the situation that we find ourselves in in the Lenten season. We might be going without as a way to remind ourselves of our utter dependence, our frailty, our own limits. Uh, if we allow ourselves the, the opportunity to, to go without breakfast or without coffee in the morning, neither of those things have I done, just as a moment of confession. But we don't allow ourselves to come up against our limits very often. And that's one of the gifts of this season, to be able to come up against our own limitations. As is the case for Nicodemus, this exchange might raise more questions for us than it answers. We might even feel a sliver of the disorientation that Nicodemus 
demonstrates in his response. Why, for instance, does Jesus refer to this obscure passage in Numbers? Well, for one thing, it's, it's plenty bewildering, but perhaps it's also because what lies in the background of this episode in Numbers is the Israelites' refusal to recognize their utter dependence upon God. They're complaining about the lack of food and water, bumping up against their limitations. Perhaps Jesus points Nicodemus back to this story in Numbers to help him identify with Israel's longing for bread so that Jesus might reveal himself to Nicodemus as the only source of eternal life, the only source of the bread that truly satisfies. And whatever, whatever else is going on here, I think part of what this encounter reveals is that discipleship involves surrender, that continual bumping up against our own limits and recognizing them as a gift, receiving them as God's good gift. There's a kind of letting go here of what we think we have to offer, and we do this so that we can receive from God's Spirit what we don't possess and can't produce in our own strength. Jesus intends to trouble us in this same way during the season of Lent. We're confronted with our shortcomings, our lack. One of my favorite poems to revisit during this season is by a poet named Scott Cairns. It's called Possible Answers to Prayer. And in the poem, God is the speaker, addressing humanity about the prayers that we offer. And here are the concluding stanzas of that poem. Your angers, your zeal, your lip-smackingly righteous indignation toward the many whose habits and sympathies offend you. These must burn away before you will apprehend how near I am, with what fervor I adore precisely these the several who rouse your passions. I love these lines for the way that they highlight God's affection for the very ones who rouse our passions enough to drive us to him. It would, of course, be inappropriate to identify the people who annoy us or frustrate us as poisonous serpents, but in the world of this poem, they serve the same purpose as the snakes in Numbers. God adores precisely these who trouble and offend us, who remind us of our limits. Jesus leaves Nicodemus bewildered. He troubles Nicodemus' paradigms so that, to paraphrase the line from the Cairns poem, Nicodemus might experience Jesus' nearness. Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus ends with that famous verse, God loved the world in such a way that he gave his only son. And right on the heels of this declaration that God extends his love to the world, Jesus wastes no time in extending love to the world when he interacts with a Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. We'll move there now. Story again, it's well known to many of us. He left Judea and started back to Galilee, but he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired by his journey, bumping up against his own limitations, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples, John tells us, had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask of me a drink? I'm a Samaritan. 
Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans, John helpfully tells us. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, for, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket. <laughs> I love the practicality here. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us the well and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I, will, that I give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. So I want to invite us for a moment to consider the contrasts between these two interactions that John sets side by side in his gospel, I think not by accident. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. Jesus meets the Samaritan woman during the day. Nicodemus is a well-respected Pharisee, an authority on the Jewish law. The Samaritan woman is an outsider. And just so we don't overlook this fact, John includes that parenthetical reminder, Jews don't share things in common with Samaritans. Nicodemus is named. The Samaritan woman goes unnamed. Although it's important to note that the Samaritan woman's testimony to those in her city after she departs uh, is one that garners uh, a response. So it suggests that she has a level of credibility. Uh, I, I think it would be wrong to assume that she's a sinner and she's dismissed because of what John tells us in this story. Nicodemus intends to come to Jesus while Jesus meets the Samaritan woman as she performs her daily tasks, going about her routine. As he does with Nicodemus, Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman about eternal life. But the conversations unfold differently. Jesus troubles Nicodemus' paradigms, as we've already said, inviting him to rethink everything that he might experience, that he might, inviting him to rethink everything that he might experience eternal life. To the Samaritan woman, Jesus offers eternal life as living water that will never run dry. Biblical scholar Sister Mary Margaret Pazdan sums up their contrasts by saying she, the Samaritan woman, represents the invitation of Jesus to each person regardless of background. Nicodemus, in contrast, may be her perfect foil. His status in Jerusalem was assured, yet he lacked the imagination and daring to reconsider traditional viewpoints. So it seems clear that John is inviting us to consider these two accounts together. Despite all of these differences, what's particularly striking is an easily overlooked similarity between these two encounters, which is they both refer back to Israel's story. Just as Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus includes an allusion to the Israelites' wilderness wandering and complaint about a lack of sustenance, Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman also recalls an episode in Israel's history that is similar, echoing in the background of both of these encounters are separate instances of the Israelites complaining to God and Moses about a lack of provision. Echoing in the background of John 4 is Exodus 17. From the wilderness of sin, the whole congregation of the Israelites journeyed by stages as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. The people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. 
And the people complained against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and livestock with thirst? It's striking, isn't it, that when Jesus meets the Samaritan woman, he experiences need. And he expresses it with the same words that the Israelites use in the wilderness. This encounter has captured the imaginations of Christians throughout the century. A composer from Syria in the 6th century named Romanus the Melodist, quite the name, wrote imaginatively of this encounter between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. One verse he writes includes these words written from the perspective of Jesus. I have brought you to thirst through thirst. I was tormented by thirst in order that I might reveal you as thirsty. What beautiful lines that testify to the fact that Jesus took on flesh, experienced need, that he might reveal our own longing. He thirsts beside the well precisely so that he might meet us there. And in that meeting, help us to recognize that our own thirst can only be satisfied in him. I realize that I'm risking trouble here from a lot of different directions by repeatedly comparing Jesus to poisonous snakes. But here it is again. Jesus shows up thirsty to the well, troubling the woman for water. And in so doing, he troubles this woman toward eternal life. And I want to submit to you this morning that he intends to trouble us in the same way. It's perhaps easy to miss that this repeated request or complaint about food and water from Exodus and from Numbers and again in John also shows up in the prayer that Jesus instructs us to pray. Even the Lord's Prayer includes the line, Give us today our daily bread. And while that might register not so much as complaint as simple request, the echoes are nonetheless there. I don't think this is accidental either. We're instructed to acknowledge our lack and dependence on a regular basis. When we pray, Jesus intends for us to call to mind the very things we can't solve or make happen on our own. And we are to acknowledge our ever-present neediness alongside the availability of God's good gifts, even the gifts of our own limits. Rowan Williams has said, praying for our daily bread is asking to be reacquainted with our vulnerability, to learn how to approach not only God, but each other with our hands wide open. So to pray this prayer with integrity we need to be thinking about the various ways in which we defend ourselves against the need to open our hands. We cannot fully and freely pray for our daily bread when we are wedded inseparably to our own rightness, think Nicodemus, righteousness, security, or prosperity. As we draw toward a close, I want to leave a little bit of extra time this morning to we journey through this Lenten season, consider our own limits and the ways that Jesus might even this morning be troubling us toward eternal life, to consider what that might mean in new ways. So as we prepare to approach the table, I want to pray a prayer and then we'll conclude by uh, saying together the words of the Lord's Prayer. 
Would you join me in prayer? Lord Jesus, we want to to learn from these two encounters. We pray that you would open our hands, uh, level our defenses. Lord, decouple us from the need to be right, uh, our need to be secure, our need to be prosperous. Trouble and unsettle us, we pray. That we might respond to your invitation to be born again and to receive life to the full. Lord Jesus, we thank you for taking on flesh and for experiencing need. For coming up against your own limits and receiving even those as a gift. Thank you for thirsting that you might reveal our thirst. Thank you for modeling vulnerability in this way and troubling us toward the change that we need to make. Thank you for our own forms of neediness that draw us back to you. Lord, prepare our hearts as we come to receive from your open hands, which offer the bread of your body to us. And we pray that we would receive the living water that you offer, and in so doing, we would even imitate the, the faithfulness of the Samaritan woman who left her water jar, the source of her own security and her means of provision, and returned to the city to bear witness to you. Stir our imaginations in this way today. And we pray for those experiencing limits physically. Those in need of healing. Lord, we acknowledge those limits and we also acknowledge that in the prayer that you invite us to pray, we are to pray for your kingdom to come and your will to be done. Which means that those limits would be done away with through your healing touch. We thank you, Lord, for the eternal life that you offer. Now we pray as our Lord taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Would you join us at the table of our Lord today?